Indonesia loses hosting rights for the FIFA U20 World Cup, another airstrike in Myanmar, and China's economic recovery boosts growth for the region. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is April 20th, 2023. On today's show... The pursuit of an independent foreign policy should mean the diversification of a country's international relations so that the Philippines, for instance, is not only dependent on either the United States because the U.S. is our ally or China because of our economic relationship with it. Instead, you know, the pursuit of an independent foreign policy should really be about reinvigorating, reaching out, deepening our relationships with other countries, middle powers in the region and beyond. That was Charmaine Willoughby on what an independent foreign policy and networked alliances in the region mean for the Philippines. It's been a busy month for the U.S.-Philippines alliance, and Charmaine's interview with Greg and Alina dives into all of the developments. First, though, the headlines. Today, I am long overdue in welcoming one of our stellar interns with the Southeast Asia program here at CSIS, Margaret Lin, to the show. Hi, Maggie. Hey, Karen. I'm so excited to be here. I have been listening to Southeast Asia Radio for the longest time, and so I'm honestly a little starstruck still. I know you've mentioned you're planning to travel abroad after you graduate from Georgetown in May. If you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you go? This is a great question, Karen. Last month in March, um, Georgetown had its spring break, and during that spring break, I actually went to Paris and due to the strikes was stranded in the airport for around two days. And right after I left, there was actually a news story that came out about the heirs of the last Sulu Sultanate actually contesting properties around the Malaysian embassy. And so if I could travel anywhere, I guess right now, I would say that I would want to go back to Paris and probably wander down the street and just see, you know, if I can find these properties that are being currently contested for 15 billion in arbitration. Wow, that's a really interesting story. I hope you get to go back. First up on our headlines, FIFA's decision to strip Indonesia of its rights to host the Under-20 or U-20 World Cup has caused central Java governor and presidential hopeful Ganjar Pranowo to lose his position as the top polling candidate. Three weeks ago, the International Federation of Association Football announced that it was seeking a new host for the group drawing phase of this year's tournament, which had previously been scheduled to be held in Bali. The cancellation came after Bali's governor refused to host the national team from Israel, with whom Indonesia does not have diplomatic relations. Ganjar and other Muslim conservatives also expressed opposition to Israel's participation. Not only will FIFA's decision cost Indonesia more than $215 million in sunk investments and expected earnings, but Gondra's popularity dropped in a post-cancellation poll, where he is now second place behind Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto. He later apologized in a local interview to the Indonesian national team, which had only qualified to play in the tournament because of the country's host status. Karen, what are some of the implications of this for Indonesia's sports industry and Gondra's political prospects? I think we can look at the situation from multiple angles. It's likely Ganjar came out with a strong anti-Israel stance to win his party's nomination, although this has clearly publicly backfired. Although public sentiment in Indonesia towards Israel is widely negative, it seems soccer fans were willing to put that aside for the country to play, host, and boost its presence on the global stage. Ganjar is also widely seen as President Joko Widodo's favorite candidate, and would be most likely to continue Jokowi's agenda if elected in 2024. But the elections are still almost a year away, and voters by that point may prioritize more pressing concerns like infrastructure and inflation. At least the PDIP, Ganjar and Jokowi's party, hopes. Indonesia was also hoping to use its host status to rehabilitate its image in the sports world, after a stadium disaster last fall where more than 100 spectators died in a stampede. Shortly after the cancellation, President Jokowi gave a live stream address where he appealed to FIFA to change their decision and claimed Indonesia did not intend to mix matters of sports and politics. Argentina was officially named the new U-20 host this week. 
Pivoting from Indonesia, we need to talk about the Myanmar junta's recent unconscionable act against civilians. Last Tuesday, Myanmar's military conducted an airstrike against a village in the northwestern Sagang region that killed at least 170 people. A military spokesperson told state television that they targeted the village because it was holding a ceremony to mark the opening of an office for its local volunteer defense force. And people from nearby communities, including women and children, had come to the village to attend the ceremony. At least 600 air attacks by the military have been recorded between February 2021 and January 2023, as the junta has increasingly relied on air power in a scorched earth campaign against the Myanmar people. This is the deadliest single incident so far. In addition to reporting on the terrible humanitarian casualties of this war, we need to cover what the response from ASEAN and the international community has been. As ASEAN chair, Indonesia issued a statement saying all forms of violence must end immediately, particularly the use of force against civilians. Although Indonesian Foreign Minister Retno Marsudi said earlier this month that officials have been meeting with a wider range of stakeholders from Myanmar with progress made towards resolving the crisis, it is clear that implementation of the five-point consensus peace plan has been completely ineffective. Japan, Taiwan, and Western governments have also joined calls to suspend the supply of jet fuel to the Tatmadaw. This latest act of violence has definitely challenged the effectiveness of ASEAN's current strategy of advocating for dialogue. A cabinet minister in Myanmar's parallel national unity government stated that efforts to negotiate with the military only give its leaders more time to regroup and plan another attack. The bloc is expected to meet at a summit in early May, and justice ministers from G7 and ASEAN countries will hold a joint meeting for the first time in July. The meeting will broadly discuss promoting the rule of law in the international order, so we can only hope representatives will propose actionable alternatives to resolving the crisis in Myanmar. Moving on to more headlines. The Asian Development Bank has released its latest Asian development outlook, and economic prospects for the region are bright. Growth in developing Asia is expected to clock in at 4.8% this year, with China and India being the region's main growth supports. Inflation will also decrease slightly and move closer to pre-pandemic averages by 2024. Unsurprisingly, tourism-focused economies such as Thailand, Indonesia, and Vietnam stand out as the biggest winners of China's post-COVID reopening, although tourist arrivals are still below pre-pandemic levels. What are some other trends for the report, Karen? Overall, Southeast Asia's growth in 2023 will be slower than 2022. Vietnam's economy is forecasted to grow the fastest in ASEAN at 6.5% this year, and stronger private consumption and investment also quickened growth in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand. Reopened ASEAN economies witnessed a shift in demand from goods to services as the lifting of lockdowns and border restrictions have allowed the resumption of in-person services that had to be halted throughout the pandemic. The report also stressed how Southeast Asia's exports were resilient due to healthy exports of electronics, machinery, and commodities. For Malaysia and Indonesia, rising exports of refined, crude, and palm oil helped lift their export statistics, while for Thailand, rising exports of vehicles and electronics mitigated declines in other sectors. Overall, it looks like multiple sources agree that China's economic recovery will be a boon for the region. Even though the global economy is heading into its weakest period of growth in three decades, the World Bank's latest economic update suggests that the East Asia and Pacific region is more resilient to global headwinds than others. However, regional economies will have to tackle a familiar set of problems to ensure sustained growth, including climate risks, declining productivity, aging populations, and structural reforms. And those are the headlines. Thank you so much for joining me, Maggie. Thanks for having me on, Karen. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Charmaine Willoughby on the U.S.-Philippines Alliance's Very Busy Month. Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio, everybody. I am your host, Gregory Poling with CSIS, joined as always by my co-host, Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Hi, Alina. Hi, Greg. Alina, where are you joining us from? 
I'm not going to say because I don't want anybody to hate me. So I, I'm just joining all of you virtually. Alina is in a tropical place. It's not Southeast Asia. And she's taken time out of her vacation to join us. So we appreciate it. And we are joined today by our mutual good friend, Charmaine Willoughby, who is in a tropical place that is Southeast Asia. Charmaine's joining us morning time in Manila. Hi, Charmaine. Hello, Greg and Alina and everybody. Good morning from Manila. Good evening to you guys. So Charmaine, for those who don't know, and you should, is Associate Professor of International Relations at De La Salle University in Manila. And the reason that she's joining us today is because we just had a whole bunch of stuff happen in the U.S.-Philippines alliance over the last couple of weeks. So for those who might not have been paying attention, on April 11th, so a week ago from when we were recording, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin welcomed their counterparts from the Philippines, Secretary of Foreign Affairs Enrique Manalo, and officer in charge, I think still the official title, Secretary Carlito Galvez of the Department of National Defense for the third ever two plus two meeting between the U.S. and Philippines, first one in seven years. And I'm sure not coincidentally that very same day was the kickoff for the annual Balikatan or shoulder to shoulder exercises in the Philippines, which this year is the biggest ever with more than 17,000 combined troops. And all of that fits in to a period of alliance modernization and energy we've seen underway certainly since the new Marcos government took over, but probably since the last year or so of the of the Duterte government. So it got a lot of attention here in Washington, but Charmaine, why don't we start off by asking what's the sense like in Manila of how the 2 plus 2 went and how Balikatan is going? Well, the perception in general of Filipinos is positive in regard to the alliance with the United States. We held a survey late last year, November to December 2022, This is a survey run by the Foundation for the National Interest, a think tank that I'm involved in. And the top preferred partner of the Philippines is actually the United States. So in that sense, and considering the state and the direction of the alliance under the Duterte administration, the recent 2 plus 2 meeting plus the Balikatan exercises, these are all welcome initiatives and welcome developments in in the alliance. So it is generally seen positively from the ground. I read a piece by our mutual friend, Richie Darian, about how not everyone feels the same way about this positive turn in the alliance relationship. And Charmaine, you said, you know, it was generally, it has been generally embraced, but are there pockets of opposition or maybe hesitancy about where this alliance relationship is heading? Well, of course, there are pockets of dissatisfaction, I would say. And I think a lot of that has to do really with the historical baggage that the United States and the Philippines continue to carry to this day. But there have always been talk about equality, the alliance. But to be honest, I don't think like true, absolute and full equality is going to be possible considering the past that the two countries have have had and also considering 
that very asymmetrical relationship that we've had in the past and how the United States was the one that ushered the Philippines, so to speak, into independence. But, you know, despite the fact that that has always been spun as kind of like the U.S. is the big brother, that underpins a very unequal and asymmetric relationship. So yes, of course, that is carried forward today. We saw that very, very starkly in the early 1990s when the U.S. military bases closed down in Clark and in Subic. And some threads of that continue to this day. But nonetheless, I still would like to draw attention to the broader advantages and benefits of deepening and reinvigorating the alliance today. I like that you've highlighted the historically unequal nature of the alliance. And, you know, when we hosted Secretary Manalo the day before the 2 plus 2 at CSIS last week, one of the Touchstones that he came back to again and again, I think you've, you all saw it in the press conference after 2 plus 2, was this idea that the alliance has to be more equal, that it's not just getting closer, but it's modernizing and, and adapting in important ways. And that seems to be reflective of the political necessities in Manila, the fact that in 2023, we, you know, we are now 30 years out from the expulsion of U.S. basing from the Philippines. We will never go back to a time when there is U.S. basing, when the Philippines gives the U.S. a blank check on the alliance, that this has to be a real negotiation. And there's obvious inequalities in power and military capabilities that are always going to create, I guess, fears of abandonment on one side and, and entrapment on the other. But I do think that probably for the first time in the history of the alliance, there is a, a real effort on both sides to figure out what an alliance that would be resilient and more equitable, if not equal, would actually look like. Absolutely. And that's a good thing about the alliance. Certainly, the U.S.-Philippine alliance is very different from the U.S.-Japan alliance, where the guidelines for how to interact, how to move forward, have all been pinned down and identified. But in the U.S.-Philippine alliance, we're still kind of wading through the dark and seeing what are the mutual benefits, specifically in an operational sense, that we could both gain from this. It begs repeating, though, that this alliance is a symbiotic relationship. It should continue to be a symbiotic relationship where both countries experience mutual benefits. So what's it going to take for this alliance relationship to be more equitable, do you think, Charmaine? I mean, does the answer lie in the bilateral defense guidelines, which still, I think, are in the process of being fleshed out? I think, yeah, you're absolutely right, Alina. And I think one of the first things that the Philippines needs to do is to really be consistent with its foreign policy instead of oscillating, you know, from one end to another, depending on the sitting president. Unfortunately, that has usually been how Philippine foreign policy has been characterized in that we tend to kind of swing from one end of the pendulum to another. So I think one of the things that the Philippines needs to do is to aim for consistency in our foreign policy, because this also is reflective of our own credibility as a partner, as an ally, and a responsible member in the international community. Charmaine, I, I want to dig in to the defense guidelines and the EDCA expansion and all of the other specific ways that we're seeing both sides try to modernize the alliance. But first, Let's talk about why. If you listen to China's ambassador to Manila, why is because the Philippines is being duped by the U.S. and, and has no agency in its own decision making. But from a Philippine perspective, I would think for the most part, Beijing drove Manila 
to these decisions. And I mean, particularly after after Duterte's attempts to do the exact opposite, left relatively little choice for the Philippines. I agree that narratives and discourses are really important. And this is something that I'm working on in a project on information campaigns in the Philippines, Indonesia, and Malaysia. We're doing a comparative study. This is a project under the Minerva Research Initiative of the USDOD. And one of the narratives that really surfaced in the Philippines is how China keeps on projecting the we call it the surround narrative, that it's always being surrounded on all fronts. And so the way that it is responding to a lot of these things is very much justified. And part of that spin on that narrative is that the Philippines is just being duped or is just being led into trouble or further trouble, deeper trouble, because of its relationship with the United States. This is one among the various narratives and discourses that are circulating around and propagated by China, by pro-China actors in, in the Philippines. But I think the narrative that really ought to surface is a narrative that upholds and protects Philippine national interests. I don't think we, well, we do, we do see a lot of those actors that are advancing those narratives, but those narratives about protecting our own national interests should be coordinated and should find an anchor so that it is embedded and internalized even further in Philippine society. And within the Philippines, I mean, just to stay on this narrative track for a little bit, has it been getting any traction at all among Filipinos on the ground? And if so, why? More so during the Duterte administration. This also serves as a fuel for the defeatist attitude of the Philippines in that the direction or the trajectory of this narrative is that, well, China is so powerful and it's not really doing anything to deserve, you know, all the aggressive moves from the United States. And if the Philippines sides with the United States, it's just going to get into in the middle. And there might be a lot of disadvantages and it would be very costly for the Philippines. So it's best if the Philippines would just, you know, stand down and not, not be involved. And this really fuels a very defeatist attitude, you know, the sentiment that things are going to be futile anyway. If a war breaks out, the Philippines would lose in 10 seconds, 10 minutes. So we might as well not fight to begin with. So I think everybody should really be critical about these narratives that are being circulated because it fuels particular angles, particular perspectives and agendas and then propagandas. Yeah, the energy in the Alliance Modernization right now, so much of it does seem focused on increased U.S. support for modernization of the armed forces of the Philippines, not necessarily because the U.S. believes that Filipino soldiers are going to be on the front lines of some future conflict, but because I think the U.S. recognizes that for the Philippines to see the alliance as valuable to Philippine national interests, then the U.S. does first and foremost have to help the AFP become a more credible external defense force. And so a $100 million increase in foreign military financing last year, the investments under the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, which, of course, everybody wants to talk about the, the two up in Cagayan, but the other seven are all about building up the capabilities of Philippine bases, of Philippine troops can use them. And then even Bali Katan, when you look at the exercises this year, 
you know, the U.S. bringing in HIMARS and Javelins and engaging for the first time in live fire drills at sea, all of it seems, from my perspective at least, to, to try to be sending a message that the U.S. wants to help the Philippines help itself, you know, wants to help the Philippines defeat that narrative that there's nothing it can do but just watch China do whatever whatever it wants. So I, I guess I wonder... Is that having an effect? The complaints we heard for years and years behind closed doors, particularly from AFP officers, was, you know, we like the Americans in theory, but they come and they treat us like a second-class ally. They give us their discarded weapons. They don't let us play with any of the cool stuff at Bali Catan like they don't trust us. I don't hear that as much the last year, but maybe that's just because people aren't saying it to me. Well, like I said, and if I could circle back to how we started this conversation, certainly the developments this year, you know, with the bilateral strategic dialogue, uh, developments in EDCA, the 2 plus 2 and the Palikatan, these are all welcome developments from the Philippines, especially with the identification of new EDCA sites and the fact that there is $100 million set aside for the development of these new EDCA sites coupled with and complemented with USID-led community-based activities for HADR and the more non-traditional security issues, this really gives the perception that the alliance is not solely limited to the military aspect. In fact, this is an indication that the U.S.-Philippine alliance is actually going with the times and acknowledging that it's not something that's so narrow that's just focused on the military. So, of course, the $100 million, that's a lot of money. But if you divide that into the four EDCA sites, that won't be a lot of, it'd still be a lot, but maybe more will be needed to fully develop these new EDCA sites. But Charmaine, I mean, all this extra military stuff, I mean, Apart from all the military assistance that's going to be funneled to the Philippines, in the past there was also, you know, bridge building and the establishment of schools. I remember this at the kind of at the height of the global war on terror, and that continued even into the mid two thousands. I mean, how is this new push for the, a modernized alliance relationship? anything more than just kind of like bells and whistles on the alliance relationship if all this was already being done in the past? Absolutely. That's undeniable. So all of these development projects, these these are not new. But what is new and where the United States and the Philippines can really collaborate on and work together would be in terms of coastal development or the protection of the marine resources, the development of marine protected area management plans, for instance. And these plans, these development projects will only be successful and will only be sustainable if they're being led by the communities themselves. So while these development projects, like you said, you know, building bridges, building schools, these have been done before, but where the alliance can really make a difference this time is in terms of these civil maritime security projects. I want to push back a little bit. I mean, I do. I, I take only this point, and you know, Balikatan, for instance, always includes the the civic action part where they show up and they help, you know, repaint an elementary school or whatever. And it it is largely seen as symbolism. But if USAID actually contributes a considerable amount of dedicated funding to communities around the EDCA sites, which is what they're suggesting they'll do, it could have an impact. And you've 
This seems to be a request coming from both sides because you've seen Philippine officials repeatedly stress, especially the last months, that the EDCA sites are going to be job creators, right? And and it's not just the EDCA sites. The you know involvement of Cerberus at Subic has been talked up a lot. Nolangapo as a job creator. The Japanese promised to invest in Subic. I mean, the one thing that was clear about the loss of Subic and Clark in the 90s is that it was devastating to the local economy of Olamgapo and Anahola City. And so I think there is a recognition that the EDCA sites need to provide, even though they're not U.S. bases, they're Philippine bases, and the amount of investment in them is going to be relatively small, they have to provide some of the same economic benefits that the old U.S. bases used to if local communities are going to be supportive of them. Absolutely. And and here I'd like to bring in some of the things that I've learned in another project that I'm working on, on civil maritime security, where we, my team and I went to local communities and asked them about, you know, I went to Zambales recently and I was like, so what's it like, you know, what difference does the inability of fisher folks to fish in Scarborough Shoal, has that had any effect at all? And they do realize, fisher folks in these local communities realize that a lot of what they need to do really should be their own initiatives and that they need to think of alternative livelihoods because they cannot solely depend on, on the waters. But the thing is, and that's, this is one thing I learned, not all of the local communities or the coastal communities, not all of them have the necessary resources and training to think of alternative livelihoods. So in that sense, I think the local government units in the Philippines really do have their work cut out for them in terms of ensuring that these communities are empowered so that they themselves can think of and propose things that they need in order to continue their livelihoods and live their lives. I think that's a really important point, Charmaine. You know, this how it translates on the ground depends very much on local governments and local councils. Do you happen to know if any of the USAID assistance is going to be supporting any of these awareness raising projects or education projects that are going to be executed by local authorities themselves? Well, I'm not certain in particular if there are any like ongoing or planned USAID projects right now, but I do see other governments focusing on these matters, on information, education, and communications, and going into elementary schools, and really helping shape the narrative on the ground, and thereby empowering these local communities. One of the other, I think, interesting bits of of momentum in in the alliance over the last year has been the greater efforts to network the U.S.-Philippine alliance more with the U.S.-Japan, U.S.-Australia alliances, and the way that that's not just kind of a push from the U.S. and Japan, Australia, but also like very explicit requests and demands coming out of the palace for more direct involvement with the Aussies and especially more direct involvement with the Japanese. I know why the Japanese and the Aussies and the Americans all want that. Why does the Philippines want more networking with Canberra and Tokyo so much? I think this is part of the administration's pursuit of an independent foreign policy. If you recall, during the Duterte administration, this phrase has been used and abused so many times, particularly because President Duterte defined the pursuit of an independent foreign policy as simply being independent from the United States and thereby, you know, justifying his pivot to China. But 
really, uh, the pursuit of an independent foreign policy should mean the diversification of a country's international relations. So that the Philippines, for instance, is not only dependent on either the United States because the U.S. is our ally or China because of our economic relationship with it. Instead, you know, the pursuit of an independent foreign policy should really be about reinvigorating, reaching out, deepening our relationships with other countries, middle powers in the region and beyond. So I think that's one of the reasons why the Philippines has been so gung-ho, if I can use that term, on being part of these trilateral or minilateral arrangements between Japan, the Philippines, the US, Australia, and all that. It's also one way for the Philippines to connect to other spokes, you know, speaking about the hub and spokes um, system. This is an initiative where there's spoke-to-spoke connection instead of all the spokes just being connected to the hub. One of the things that caught my eye from some of the readouts of the 2 plus 2 meetings was this, these references to space and cyberspace. But then when I tried to dig deeper into those references, I wasn't able to come find any, any further details. I think there's a capacity issue. I, I can understand why the U.S. would be interested in the space dimension. Is there any appetite in Manila for that? There will be as soon as we get like stable internet connection. So we're we're still at that level at this point. So any any further collaborations will depend on a really good, fast, and stable internet connectivity in the Philippines. I will note that the Philippines has the only independent space agency of any nation in Southeast Asia. I don't know that that means the Philippines is going to be firing off its own rockets anytime soon, but it has ambitions. Well, that's a start, definitely. (laughs) All right, let's close with the topic that we all wish we didn't have to address, but we do because it's a U.S.-based podcast. The Taiwan narrative that's, like, taken over the EDCA discussion because two of the sites are in Kagiyan, and the mayor of Kagiyan clearly thinks they're about Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, you took part in one of the trilats that we did last year with the Australians, where there was a lot of discussion about Taiwan following Speaker Pelosi's visit. And I do get the very clear sense that the discussion about how Taiwan crises would impact Philippine national interests has sharpened a lot over the last year and become more nuanced, and that it is a topic of discussion within the alliance, but one that's not settled yet. And I think people maybe are jumping the gun assuming that what the Philippine role in a hypothetical crisis would be has already been settled when I I view the fact that the discussion is happening at all like this as a sign that the alliance is modernized in the way it should be. But maybe I'm just being too Pollyannish about this. What do you think? For one, I'm very glad that discussions about Taiwan are gaining ground in the Philippines. Slowly gaining ground, but gaining ground nonetheless. Whereas in the past, there really has been no strategic dialogues or conversations about the implications to the Philippines in case of a Taiwan contingency. But lately, there have been these really important and critical conversations going on And I think that's largely because of, number one, China's continued occupation of features in the West Philippine Sea, and number two, President Marcus's recent efforts to deepen and reinvigorate the alliance with the United States. So all of a sudden, you know, the Taiwan issue is on everybody's radar. And we cannot discount that, yes, there are going to be pockets of sentiments, some groups 
who believe that, you know, the Philippines should not even be involved because, you know, when things go bad in Taiwan, the Philippines is going to be caught in the middle. But there's also on the other side, on the other side of the coin or the other side of the equation, those who believe that this is all the more reason why we need to deepen the alliance and also why we need to reach out and deepen our relations with Australia, with Japan, even with the European Union. And in that sense, I am really glad. I mean, obviously, we don't have the absolute solutions in case of a Taiwan contingency, but I am glad that it's now starting to be part of general discourse. Alina, you have anything else yeah. that you want to get on the table? No, no, I was just going to add a comment. It's interesting because I haven't really seen any vibrant discussion about Taiwan, whether contingency or not, apart from in Southeast Asia, apart from in the Philippines. So in a sense, the Philippines stands out from the rest of its neighbors in the region about, you know, the Taiwan issue factoring into any national discussion. I'm glad you mentioned that, Alina, because the sentiment from the rest of Southeast Asia and ASEAN countries is that they're a little bit cautious and hesitant about the Philippines' deepening relationship with the United States because, again, for fear that it would anger China or it would further provoke China. So, yes, they're, I think because of the geopolitical reality and the location of the Philippines, this is precisely why there are now conversations about Taiwan. Whereas if you're speaking to Singaporeans, Malaysians, they're kind of like, hey, maybe we should tread carefully and not do a lot of these things that the Philippines is doing. I wonder how much of the advancement of the discussion in the Philippines is about the just geographical realities that you know Taiwan is a more imminent threat to Philippine national security because there will be spillover effects of any violence around Taiwan on the Philippines, or how much of it's about the alliance. And I, I think some of it, but not most of it. But clearly, there's a recognition, at least among the AFP and the political leadership, that a more equal alliance includes more responsibilities on the Philippine side, not just on the American side. And what those are have to be discussed through things like the guidelines. And then third, probably the fact that opinion about China is in the basement in the Philippine public and strategic elite, right? So the more you believe that China is a revisionist power and is likely to use force, of course, the more worried you are about Taiwan. If you're in a country where the majority of the public believes that China is not a threat, then you're probably predisposed to assume that any concerns about a Taiwan crisis are being overhyped. In many ways, I think many of us in Southeast Asia are still kind of in denial about China and what China is capable of. Whereas for us in the Philippines, like we've known this all along since 1995, 2012. We've seen slow encroachments in, into our territory. So for us, it's like it's not new. But for others in Southeast Asia, you know, they may need a little bit more convincing. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave the conversation there because... As always, Alina and I are way above our nominal timeline that we try to stick to. This is not going to be the last time we talk about the U.S.-Philippine alliance. There's whispers in the air that we might get a leader-level visit soon. We'll probably, hopefully, get defense guidelines sometime in the next few months. So there will be plenty of other developments to cover. But for now, Charmaine, thank you so much for your time. And Alina, thank you for leaving the beach to help record this. Thanks as always. Thank you.
this is Southeast Asia Radio's final episode of season one. Thank you to everyone who has followed and listened to us for the past year. We've really enjoyed bringing the latest from Southeast Asia to you, and we hope to bring you more content in the future. Write to us at searadio at csis.org anytime with questions, feedback, or comments. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. And happy Songkran, P. Mai, Dingyan to everyone who celebrated last weekend. Marla Hiller is our producer and our interns are Stephen Vo and Margaret Lin. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Maggie Lin. And we'll see you in two weeks for a new season of Southeast Asia Radio.